6-5 lead. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly media and news analysis program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be going uh, solo tonight as uh, Dick Whaley takes care of some family business out east. And uh, here we are, April 1st. Of course, uh, historically, the... uh, Annual event known here in town as the Hash Bash, uh, originally associated with this day, um, no longer. Uh, there was a time when uh, Hash Bash was April 1st, no matter what day of the week it was. It's been a little commercialized and so forth since then, and outside uh, interests have uh, taken uh, a sort of a position amongst its uh, continuance, but it is uh, still an event. On the local calendar as well. And amusingly, a couple years ago, the uh, British newspaper, the Financial Times, inadvertently, uh, I assume, conflated two uh, Ann Arbor events into one new, bold, striking idea. Of course, the hash bash, well known to uh, locals, uh, is essentially uh, dedicated to the... uh, pursuit to normalize uh, the laws regarding uh, marijuana, to decriminalize it, to normalize it. Um, And then there's another event associated with the graduation of uh, students from the university called the Naked Mile. Well, this British newspaper uh, conflated the two into an event called the Hash Dash. Yes, that's right, the Hash Dash, in which uh, naked graduating students uh, smoke hash and then run naked. I didn't have the heart to tell the Financial Times that there was no such thing. I thought, well, maybe somebody will start a new tradition. And so today, uh, in the spirit of April Fools, I wish everybody a happy hash dash, if that's your thing. Well, I'm going to uh, devote uh, a big chunk of the program to continued Nixon-related matters. Of course, uh, Dick and I were were very pleased with the film Our Nixon, uh, directed by a woman named Penny Lane, uh, which won Best of Festival at this year's Ann Arbor Film Festival. Good news, exciting news, because that renders it eligible uh, to be nominated for an Oscar. I certainly think that uh, if uh, more audiences get a chance to see this film, it will touch um, some buttons and uh, strike a touch a chord there with a lot of people old enough to remember these events. And so I will be dipping into, as we have been regularly doing, uh, acknowledging uh, key events 40 years ago in the ongoing Watergate cover-up. I will be uh, taking a bit of a dramatic reading from uh, Stanley Cutler's Abuse of Power a fine single-volume set of some of the most damning of the Watergate tapes, Uh, as well as reading an excerpt from uh, Mark Feeney's uh, excellent book, Nixon at the Movies, which I really cannot recommend strongly enough. Uh, If you're interested in the history of film, if you're at all interested in Nixon, you need to 
check this book out. But I figured I would start by reading a short article by Dave Zirin from uh, The Nation magazine because uh, it's a timely subject. And this is the April 1st edition of The Nation magazine. And since there is uh, March Madness afoot still in the early days of April... Uh, and this is a bit of a controversial subject. I'm going to read Dave Zirin's article, The Shame of the NCAA. Um, I don't know if the guys on the sports program tonight talked about the bizarre incident in which the dude from uh, Louisville leg basically snapped in half yesterday uh, watching the game at my father's house on Easter Sunday. Uh, there was all this waiting and wringing of hands and shots. The camera panned the crowd. People were weeping. I thought, what happened? Is there a sniper? You know, what what's happened? And indeed, it was a freakish uh, accident, uh, incident, uh, an injury. Uh, just fell funny, landed hard on the leg, and uh, pretty gruesome indeed to behold. But uh, I don't know. For my money, uh, hockey uh, injuries are uh, a lot more dangerous. And uh, Sidney Crosby, uh, who there's no love lost for him, took a puck in the face the other day and. Uh, I think uh, a puck in the face has probably got to hurt more than even a snapped leg. Uh, but I don't know. I've uh, only experienced a puck in the face. I've never really snapped my leg in half like that. So I guess I don't know. But um, Michigan, of course, has advanced uh, from the Sweet 16 to the Elite Eight. And so uh, with this in mind, uh, we can brace ourselves uh for the uh, likelihood of uh, basketball-related riots, I guess we'll call them. We have had a history of that here in town. So <clears throat> local merchants down there on South U, uh, U of M wins this game. You might want to hire private security forces since there seems to be little effort uh, on behalf of local law enforcement authorities to uh, put the kibosh on these uh, unruly student celebrations related to uh, basketball uh, wins or losses, as the case may be. Um, one year they tried to blame the hooliganism on the hash bash, which uh, was ridiculous because that's a fairly mellow crowd, uh, not interested in the destruction of uh, private uh, property or public property, <clears throat> for that matter. But uh, the basketball riots, quite another story. So let's uh, take a look at Dave Zirin's uh, comments. Um, I think he's got some important things to say, and not a lot of people are likely to get this uh, point of view. So here we go. <clears throat> it's time for that period of breathless college hoops hysteria known as March Madness. It's time for bracketology, Final Four predictions, office pools, and the gambling of billions of dollars, legal and illegal. What will go largely unnoted is the fact that kids, ranging in age from 18 to 22, and branded with corporate logos, are producing this tidal wave of revenue, and they're not receiving a dime of it. Welcome to the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA, in the 21st century, about as corrupt and mangled an institution as exists in the United States. At palatial college stadiums across the country, players are covered in more ads than stock cars and generate billions of dollars, all to the roar of millions of fans for whom college sports are tantamount to religion. One problem cannot be tackled without the other. The same system that spends so much on revenue-generating sports and is the stage of the sports world's most egregious scandals, from Notre Dame to Penn State, 
also exploits athletes to a degree that renders such scandals inevitable. A constant refrain by the yipping heads of the sports world is that the NCAA is on a toboggan ride toward change, which is being driven by financial pressures. In 2010, only 22 of the 120 football bowl subdivision schools made money from campus athletics, up from only 14 the previous year. In a time of austerity, public universities preach, with a catch in their throat, that the revenue just isn't there. So schools are realigning into different mega-conferences with the hope that this will provide enough money to maintain the status quo. But even the revenue-producing sport of football loses money. If you look at top salaries, though, it's hard to see much austerity. The numbers are mind-boggling. According to USA Today, salaries of new head football coaches at the bowl-eligible schools increased by 35% from 2011 to 2012. Average annual pay has ballooned to $1.64 million, an astonishing increase of more than 70% since 2006. This is all as tuition hikes, furloughs, layoffs, and cuts in student aid have continued unabated. In an era of stagnating wages, compensation for coaching a college football team has risen like a booster's adrenaline during bowl season. The question is how. Not just how this is possible, given the stark economic realities of most universities, but how can schools be this shameless? The question is increasingly relevant as the organization's crisis spills into open view. Quote, I don't recall a time when there has been less optimism about the NCAA and how it operates, says Joe Potuto. That's the name, Potuto, the former chair of the NCAA's Committee on Infractions and a law professor at the University of Nebraska, speaking to the New York Times recently. After he became NCAA president in 2010, Mark Emmert had to be shamed into the idea of considering basic fairness to the athletes who generate all this wealth. In an interview on a PBS Frontline special, Money and March Madness, a visibly agitated Emmert refused to reveal his own seven-figure salary on camera and insisted that it would, quote, be utterly unacceptable to convert students into employees. I can't say it often enough. Obviously, that student-athletes are students. They are not employees. Close quote. He quickly backpedaled, though, telling USA Today that the April 2011 NCAA board meeting, uh, he would, quote, make clear that I want paying players to be a subject we explore, close quote. After Emmert revealed that he was justice curious, the NCAA quickly issued a statement with that this kind of exploration was consistent with previous statements. Sure enough, the April meeting produced a proposal for a stipend. Even though it was quickly rescinded, the issue will not go away. In fact, just in time for the NCAA finals, we seem to have reached a tipping point on the issue of compensating college athletes. As former Syracuse All-American linebacker Dave Megizy says, quote, these are more than full-time jobs. <clears throat> when I played at Syracuse in the early 1960s, it wasn't like that. We had a regular season and 20 days of spring practice. Now it's year-round. It's a more cynical system now than when I played, starting with those one-year renewables. That's a heavy hammer. You get hurt, tough beep, you're out. And there's no workers' comp for injuries, close quote. The biggest impediment to reform, however, is the greed of those in power. 
Even as schools are losing money, even as student athletes, quote unquote, put themselves at risk for free, those running the NCAA have never had it better. March Madness, the 68 team elimination basketball tournament, generates at least 90% of the NCAA's operating budget. That included, for 2009, a total compensation for the 14 top executives of nearly $6 million, with the president earning $1.1 million. The association has lavished $35 million on a 130-square-foot expansion of its headquarters in Indianapolis. Other revenue streams come from video games, posters, jerseys, and boutique credit cards featuring images of popular amateur athletes. <clears throat> That's my emphasis on amateur. <clears throat> Excuse me. The corruption extends to the college sports media industry. Over the past decade, the number of college football and basketball games broadcast on ESPN channels has skyrocketed from 491 to 1,320. ESPN now happens to be both the number one broadcaster of college football and basketball, and those sports number one and those sports number one news provider. Covering sports and shilling for the industry have become carnally intertwined. Nationally credited journalists from ESPN and other media outlets reportedly show up at the Fiesta Bowl a week in advance, where they stay at the finest resorts and receive a different expense present every day, courtesy of the tournament's corporate sponsors. As DC Sports Radio host Steve Saban said, quote, it sounds like sports media Hanukkah. The Fiesta Bowl was an embezzler's paradise, a wash in scandal for years, with no one the wiser until Fiesta Bowl CEO John Junker pleaded guilty to fraud last year. Then there's March Madness on CBS and its neat $1 million per commercial rates for the Final Four. Eight hours of coverage with all those lucrative commercial breaks are the cure for media recession blues. And all that's apart from the multi-billion dollar gambling industry. March Madness is now officially a busier time in Vegas than the Super Bowl. Yes, that's right. I'm going to repeat that. March Madness is now officially a busier time in Vegas than the Super Bowl. No other event unites sports fans with non-sports fans in offices and factory break rooms quite like it. Every year, overheated articles from the business press rail about declining productivity as employees fill out their brackets and lodge their bets. More than $100 billion passes through Sin City at that time, and that's chicken feed compared with the money changing hands under the table and online. For the student athletes, though, quote unquote, there is nothing. As former LSU coach Dale Brown said, look at the money we make off predominantly poor black kids. We're the whore masters. Desmond Howard, who won the 1991 Heisman Trophy while playing for the Michigan Wolverines, called the system, quote, wicked, telling USA Today, quote, you see everybody getting richer and richer, and you walk around and you can't put gas in your car, you can't even fly home to see your parents, close quote. This is a civil rights issue, a fact that was made manifestly clear by one of the great chroniclers of the civil rights movement, Taylor Branch. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author of a magisterial three-volume series on Martin Luther King Jr., Branch also has roots in the sports world. As the co-author of Bill Russell's memoir, Second Wind. In October 2011, in an article for The Atlantic entitled The Shame of College Sports, 
branch sparked a discussion that has been amplified by the recent scandals. Quote, for all the outrage, he wrote, the real scandal is not that students are getting illegally paid or recruited. It's that two of the noble principles on which the NCAA justifies its existence, amateurism and the student-athlete, are cynical hoaxes, legalistic confections propagated by the universities so they can exploit the skills and fame of young athletes. The NCAA makes money and enables universities and corporations to make money from the unpaid labor of young athletes. Branch added that, quote, slavery analogies should be used carefully. College athletes are not slaves. Yet to survey the scene, corporations and universities enriching themselves on the backs of uncompensated young men whose status as student athletes deprives them of the right to due process guaranteed by the Constitution is to catch an unmistakable whiff of the plantation. Close quote. <clears throat> the, just, the injustice is outrageous. It's time for a change. The arguments against issuing a stipend or work study to scholarship athletes wither at the slightest touch. The best that critics can come up with is that the free room and board players get should be enough, or that paying them would ruin their spirit and, quote, love of the game. Comparisons to the Old South have come not just from those branded as outsiders, like Branch. Walter Byers, the association's executive director from 1951 to 1987, and the man most responsible for the modern NCAA, has seen the light. After his retirement, he told the great sports writer Steve Wolf, quote, The coaches own the athletes' feet, the colleges own the athletes' bodies, and the supervisors retain the large rewards. That reflects a neo-plantation mentality on the campuses. In a year when we are celebrating a film about Abraham Lincoln's struggle to pass the constitutional amendment that abolished slavery, there is still some emancipating to be done on college campuses, where young men are employees but are treated like an uneasy combination of chattel and gods. We need a massive reformation of this warped system. Here are a few suggestions. 1. So-called student-athletes should have workers' compensation protections. 2. Scholarships should be guaranteed for four years so players can't be dismissed from school if they run afoul of their coaches. Three, ceilings should be put on coaching salaries, with the money saved in revenue-producing sports used to pay stipends to athletes. Four, the NBA and the NFL should fund their own minor leagues so universities don't have that responsibility. Here, here. Uh, and fifth, the corrupt cartel, otherwise known as the NCAA, should be abolished. Any one of the above would make the current system more just, less rife with hypocrisy, and more able to handle the challenges of intercollegiate sports. And those are the words of Dave Zirin, who has written extensively on sports over the years, uh, not just for progressive magazines like The Nation, and the progressive and um, in these times and so forth, uh, but also books, including Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. So that's Dave Zirin, The Shame of the NCAA in the April 1st, 2013 edition of The Nation magazine. <clears throat> well, with uh, 11 minutes remaining... I think I may hold off 
on my uh, dramatic reading from Stanley Cutler and go straight to Mark Feeney's book, Nixon at the Movies. And here, indeed, is the title chapter, chapter 10. And it goes like this. Toward the end of 1947 film, The Senator Was Indiscreet, William Powell's title character suddenly gets cold feet about seeking the highest office in the land. Then he's reminded that among the attractions the presidency has to offer is a projection room right in the White House. Run your own pictures. Learning this, Powell reconsiders. Lana Turner, he asks. All of them, he's told. Powell decides the Oval Office may be worth the effort after all. Henry Kissinger would have understood. Richard Nixon, who saw but two Lana Turner films while president, The Postman Always Rings Twice from 46 and The Bad and the Beautiful from 52, needed no such inducement to seek the presidency. This did not mean that once he reached the White House, he wasted much time in taking advantage of this particular presidential prerequisite. Perquisite. On January 22, 1969, only his third night in the White House, Nixon screened his first movie there, The Shoes of the Fisherman. Anthony Quinn film from 1968. He didn't even wait for the weekend. January 22nd was a Wednesday. Over the course of the next 67 months at the White House, Camp David, Key Biscayne, San Clemente, and a handful of other locations, Nixon would spend well over 500 nights at the movies. As Watergate worsened in 1973, he averaged almost two and a half a week. Of course, few other Americans had the opportunity to screen movies for themselves. At the White House Theater, in the family room at Camp David, at Key Biscayne, or San Clemente in the living room, with a projector and a screen set up for the occasion. Even fewer can usually get any picture you want, as Rosemary Woods explained in a memo to the Nixon family, written shortly before they saw The Shoes of the Fisherman. Remember, too, that this was in the days before VCRs became a mass consumer item. One can hardly imagine the bliss a movie fan might have felt three decades ago presented with Nixon's situation. What movie fan wouldn't find himself or herself sitting in the dark just as often as Nixon did? Lest we forget, though, he wasn't just the nation's first film buff, but also leader of the free world. The two positions do not balance out. The call of office rather obviously takes precedence, a fact that Nixon was uncomfortably aware of. He made a point of qualifying his remarks about Chisholm with a false disclaimer that, I don't see too many movies. And in his biography, autobiography, writes, quote, Our favorite relaxation after dinner at Camp David or in Florida or California was to watch a movie, pointedly omitting the White House, where in fact he saw many movies too. Nixon's awareness that all this movie going might call into question how hard he worked, something he took inordinate pride in, makes all the more striking that he should have nonetheless managed to have spent so much time watching movies. For all, the president, uh, for all that the president was unusual in how much he saw, he was much less so in what he saw. Nixon saw at least two of the five top-grossing films for each of the years between 68 and 73. More often, he saw three. From 68, he saw Funny Girl, The Odd Couple, and Bullet, while missing 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Romeo and Juliet. I can't see Nixon as a Kubrick fan. From 69, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Hello, Dolly, but not The Love Bug, Midnight Cowboy, or, surprise, Easy Rider. From 1970, he saw Love Story, Airport, and Patton, but not The Aristocats or M.A.S.H. From 71, Fiddler on the Roof, The French Connection, and Diamonds Are Forever, but not Billy Jack or Summer of 42. 
From 72, he saw The Godfather, The Poseidon Adventure, and What's Up, uh, Doc, but neither Deliverance nor Jeremiah Johnson. From 73, he saw The Sting, American Graffiti, and The Way We Were, but not The Exorcist or Papillon. Uh, that first movie he saw at the White House, The Shoes of the Fisherman, did not do anywhere nearly as well at the box office as any of those films. Still, it would prove in several respects indicative of the many presidential nights at the movies to come. Like the average filmgoer, Richard Nixon saw most of his movies on Friday and Saturday nights, but that didn't mean his this most disciplined of men ruled out the luxury of an occasional weeknight movie. And several are listed here that he watched in the middle of the week. Um, or, uh, top copy, May 70, uh, the sons of Katie Elder on October 24th, 1972, or let stand in the way of his seeing a movie, something so mundane as learning of the Watergate break-in. The night that the Watergate break-in occurred, he watched The Notorious Landlady, a 1962 Kim Novak comedy, or the, when he, the night he won re-election. Uh, Wednesday after his landslide uh, victory over George McGovern, Nixon saw Victory at Sea in the White House Theater. Or the Saturday Night Massacre, having plunged the nation into what may be, as John Chancellor said on uh, NBC, the most serious constitutional crisis uh, in the nation's history, Nixon went off to watch The Searching Wind, a 1946 drama starring Robert Young. The presidency would mean neither an interruption nor a reduction in Nixon's pursuing his love of the movies. Rather, it allowed him to wallow in watching. Certainly, uh, his favorite movie qualified. It's widely assumed, I've skipped here a page, uh, it's widely assumed that Patton was Nixon's most cherished film. Instead, that honor actually belongs to another 170-minute spectacular, one that Nixon also saw three times while president. Around the World in 80 Days. For some strange reason, he loved that movie. H.R. Haldeman noted in 1993, still bemused at how Nixon cherished the film version of Jules Verne's novel. The reasons really aren't so strange. Mike Todd's extravaganza had lush, uh, lavish production values, gorgeous scenery, and dozens of stars in cameo roles. It had the further advantage of prestige, having won the 56th Academy Award for Best Picture. Neither artistically venturesome nor emotionally demanding, it was just the sort of leisurely spectacle that Nixon delighted in. In his diary, Haldeman relates how, on February 27, 1971, Nixon decided to celebrate John Connolly's 54th birthday at Camp David with a screening of Around the World. He was hysterical throughout it. As each scene was coming up, he'd say, You're going to love this particular part. Or, the scenery is just great, now watch this closely. He obviously had seen it time after time and knows the whole thing practically by heart. A less evident reason for Around the World's appeal was its being such a billet doux to the British Empire. Uh, Nixon was very much a cinematic Anglophile, especially if, like the very Victorian Around the World, the movie had a historical setting. Not surprisingly, he was a fan of the later David Lean, he saw Bridge on the River Kwai, Ryan's Daughter once, and Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago twice. The incongruity of Nixon's watching a depiction of Bolshevik triumph did not go unremarked. Newsweek reported that one guest 
uh, got so exercised by the revolutionary scenes, she walked out. And Haldeman, who was also present, observed in his diary entry for April 20th, 1969, strange to sit in a room with the leader of the free world and commander-in-chief of armed forces and the pictures of the Russian Revolution, army overthrow, etc. We all had the same thought. Well, that movie was on uh, Turner Classic a couple of weeks ago, and watching it, uh, just you know, scene after scene made me think of, well, yeah, I can see exactly why Nixon uh, would like this movie. Um, the book sort of ends with a chapter on what it calls the Nixon era of films, and that is sort of Hollywood's second golden age, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the young up-and-coming uh, directors, some of whom are still working and producing great work today, uh, such as Spielberg, uh, but others from this generation include Francis Ford Coppola, of course, uh, Robert Altman, uh, who, of course, had a uh, time, uh, several years, where he stayed here in Ann Arbor and actually produced uh, one of the great films about Nixon right here in town, a film called Secret Honor. That's uh, not so easy to track down, but well worth seeing a sort of a one-man performance of uh, post-resignation uh, Nixon reviewing uh, how everything went so terribly wrong and uh, coming to uh, quite an emotional breakdown at the end of it. It's a powerful piece of work. Uh, but Feeney's book ends with a chapter on uh, Coppola's film, The Conversation, and just uses that as a sort of a, a, the best representative of what I call and what the book uh, calls the Nixon era, what I would call the paranoid uh, conspiracy thriller. Uh, and there are a series of these great films from the early 70s. You've got Robert Redford's Three Days of the Condor. You've got uh, Warren Beatty's uh, really startling film, The Parallax View, about an assassination of a senator <clears throat> running for higher office. And uh, a conspiracy where those who witnessed the shooting uh, begin to disappear. Uh, that is a very gripping and suspenseful thriller. And, of course, uh, Gene Hackman as the surveillance expert in the Coppola film The Conversation, uh, very much uh, reflecting the spirit, the technology, and the driving interests of the man, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Um <laughs> Here's a quote from Henry Kissinger after attending the premiere of The Godfather. Uh, and Kissinger's review of The Godfather is, reminds me of Washington, just different names, different faces. Indeed, uh, there's something to be said for, for that. There's the great scene in The Godfather where uh, Michael Corleone says to his wife, uh, played by Diane Keaton, uh, my father's just a powerful man like other powerful men. And she says, well... Other powerful men like senators and presidents, you know, you're just being naive, Michael. Uh, senators and presidents don't have people killed. And uh, Al Pacino's Michael Corleone just looks at her and says, now who's being naive? And I don't think there was any naivete in the uh, Nixon White House. I, <laughs> yeah. As Jerry Mack has just stepped in and has done the uh, applicable drum roll there. Boom, uh, because there was uh, nothing but intrigue, paranoia, and God knows we're still uncovering the skullduggery uh, that went down during the Nixon years. Uh, when uh, Dick Whaley returns, we're going to go back to the uh, Stanley Cutler book 
and uh, talk about the ongoing problems of the cover-up, including Martha Mitchell. She just won't shut up. She knows too much. She doesn't know as much as Howard Hunt, but she knows enough to get some people in trouble. And indeed, that's where it's headed. So on that note...